This is episode 135 of the Stem Cell Podcast, 3D bioprinting and tissue engineering with Dr. Stephanie Willer. Hey everyone, I'm Daylon James. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast, where we culture knowledge in stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. But before we get on with that, we'd like to remind our listeners about using iTunes to rate us. Come on, guys, throw us a bone out there. Ratings make it easier for other researchers to find the Stem Cell Podcast, which means more people to discuss your favorite episodes with. Come on, let's get some momentum going. It's the echo chamber here. We need to hear what you think. You get in with the comments, tell us what we're doing right, tell us what we're doing wrong, make you happier, make the knowledge deeper. All right, moving on to today's show, we have Dr. Stephanie Willerth from the University of Victoria on the podcast today to talk about her research on tissue engineering, tissue engineering, sorry, and regenerative medicine. We've also got a roundup of recent highlights in stem cell news, as always, coming right up. But first, we'd like to invite researchers in beautiful British Columbia, the location of our upcoming guest, Dr. Willerth, to check out Science in the City. The Science in the City website and newsletter are your sources for all life science news, events, and jobs taking place in the greater Vancouver area. And if you subscribe to the newsletter before February 28th, you'll be entered to win a framed print of human ESC-derived neurons from the Science Photo Library. Check out Science in the City today at www.scienceinthecity.com. Get that print. So beautiful, those beautiful neurons. Mm. All right, let's get on with the roundup now. The first story I got here, I always say we like to start at the top here, at the Stem Cell Podcast, top of the mind here, talking about the unfortunate consequences of losing your memory here. Alzheimer's disease, you know, Alzheimer's, what's the problem there? Pathological accumulation of phosphorylated tau and accumulation of of amyloid beta fragments. They're the two major biochemical hallmarks of Alzheimer's disease. And there have been these strategies to remove the amyloid beta in in Alzheimer's disease patient brains, and those have been developed, but they're not really effective in slowing cognitive decline in clinical trials to date. So there's an idea that's building momentum that maybe we need to target the tau, or maybe we need to target both the tau and the beta to treat AD, all right? And so going on that, and you know, this is a great story out of uh, Larry Goldstein's lab at UC uh, La Jolla. Well, not, it's kind of sad, but I think an inspirational story at the same time. I was looking at the author list here, and I saw the name Daniel Williams with the affiliation of UCSD. Also, another little asterisk there, and I looked into the author information and said deceased. So I looked into that, and this was a kid, a grad student, who died of pancreatic cancer at 30 while doing this work. He was interested in some other work. He was a grad student UCSD there, and then he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, shifted his research focus to that, died with the disease, and is on this paper, I don't know, a little homage, probably some work he had to do with this, maybe before he shifted. But I think inspirational anytime you hear about a scientist living with his disease and dedicating his life to addressing that disease with his scientific pursuit, 
in this case, we lost him too soon, but his name echoes here in this story, again, out of Larry Goldstein's lab. This is really a story about drugging Alzheimer's disease, okay? Like I said, maybe the idea is that we got to treat this tau as well as the beta. Um, and, you know, one of the other things, in, in, in addition to increased beta and tau levels, um, there's also this uh, cholesterol esters. That's another thing they accumulate in both familial and sporadic Alzheimer's disease. Um, and so it's thought that, you know, this is, this is maybe another pathological hallmark. Cholesterol esters, they're, they're generated when cholesterol is converted to this ester form in the endoplasmic reticulum. And also the cholesterol esters can be converted back to cholesterol. So it's like reversible. That can happen in the lysosome. So the group here in this case, uh, they tested a library of, you know, thousands of compounds to see if they could inhibit tau accumulation in cultured IPS-derived neurons. So these IPS-derived neurons, they were derived from uh, people affected by the familial form of Alzheimer's disease, so a genetic component there, um, and found that uh, these the neuronal cholesterol esters regulated the proteosomal dependent degradation of tau. Essentially, what they did is they made the link. They showed that these, these cholesterol esters independently regulate both tau and beta accumulation. And, and in so doing, they've identified a, a druggable target, you know, a, an axis whereby all these molecular factors have an interplay and independently mediating both the beta as well as the tau effects. But they're all, they all come from the cholesterol at, at the root. So this is a druggable axis whereby you can maybe reverse the symptoms. Like I said, those cholesterol esters, they can go back to cholesterol in the lysosome. So boom, let's drug this AD thing. You know, AD, it's neurodegenerative. It's, if it's diagnosed early, we're in early days here. We may be able to kind of slow the progression, even reverse it. So that's a cool story. And another story out of my man, Kevin Egan, another neural story while we're in the neighborhood here. This is more motor neuron, ALS. Uh, Kevin Egan out of Harvard. Of course, we all know him. Uh, brilliant scientist. Also, notably, People magazine named him the world's sexiest genius one of these years. I always haze him about that. But I got to say, he's, he's a genius and he's sexy. So, I, I mean, it's not exactly libel, is it? Um... Back to the story, ALS, it's a neurodegenerative disease. We all know that. It's characterized by the loss of motor neurons in this case. And aside from two FDA-approved drugs, which really don't do much, they're very modest effect. Um, aside from those two drugs of limited effect, treatment for ALS is just supportive. All right, so you're just watching it, watching these people go down the drain, and it's crushing. Um, but, you know, in terms of the history of the pathology here, a big landmark finding of recent years is that this TDP43, it was discovered to be a major constituent of the inclusions in the sporadic cases of ALS. And TDP43, it's a DNA-RNA binding protein. Um, and there was a lot of interest then from that and the role that the perturbations in this TDP43 played in the pathology 
of both sporadic as well as familial ALS because it seemed to play a role in both. And the real question there is like, what are the substrates? This is a DNA RNA binding protein. What are the RNA substrates in this case they were looking at that uh, are perturbed when you alter the TDP43? And how does that contribute to the neurodegenerative effect? Um, so, of course, what did they do? Again, always at the cutting edge. They took um, human pluripotent stem cells that were made into human motor neurons and they did RNA sequencing on these human motor neurons from iPS cells that were either um, before, you know, that were either normal, you know, quote unquote, wild type, or uh, affected by knockdown, a knockdown of this TDP43. And then they looked by the RNA seq, they said, what are the transcripts that were regulated? And one of the most abundant um, transcripts that's in human motor neurons, this STMN2. It was noted that that was sensitive to the decline in TDP43. And this is a protein, it's necessary, it's shown STMN2. You need it for normal uh, motor neuron outgrowth and repair. And importantly, if, if you took these deficient neurons and you rescued them, you could rescue them by post-translational stabilization of this STMN2. Okay, so it seems like thereby, you know, the conclusions are that the TDP2, the loss of that was leading to a destabilization of STMN2 that was necessary. Um, and they, you know, finally the big, you know, take-home nail in the coffin there from the sexy genius was STMN2 depletion from a, a TDP43 loss. It's probably relevant in the case of patients with ALS because when they looked in the spinal cord of ALS patients post-mortem, what do they see? STMN2 expression was decreased. There you go. What do you think? TDP43, uh, connection to STMN2, closing the circle, figuring stuff out. You know, I think uh, the idea here is that maybe, I don't know, it may not be exactly a practical route to therapy, but the idea there is maybe if you if, if these patients have the, you know, the deficiency in TDP43, maybe you could go downstream and stabilize that STMN2 for them and maybe help them out a little bit. You know, the timing of ALS is brutal. You usually you succumb, you're dead between one and five years after diagnosis. And those years are miserable. So anything we could do with this to make a dent would be huge. All right, now on to the organoid portion of the roundup. We've been talking a lot about organoids in recent episodes, in recent years, just because organoids are bigging up everywhere. It's not enough to go monolayer anymore. We need organoids, all right? So we're going to come with the three organoid shots off the bow, see what you think of these. First, it's very simple. It's a recipe. The reason I have a recipe, this is a nature protocol story out of Jason Spence and Lonnie Shea over there in Michigan. And the reason I have a recipe in it is because it's just to drive home. First of all, this is useful, and I think it'll demystify these organoids and the complexity of all of them for some people who may be intimidated. So have a look. And two, like it, it really, I think is a, is a template for all these, the kind of the era we're living in. This is like the cookbook era of uh, stem cell science. All these recipes are finally, you know, we're putting them all in one book. Well, this is just one chapter. Lung organoids. Um, so the lung epithelium, it's endodermal. 
primary germ layer comes from, but that endodermal germ layer then undergoes, undergoes a ton of, you know, endoderm, mesoderm mediated signaling events in that after many, many morphogenetic movements and complex molecular events, you end up with this arborized network of conducting airways, which are the bronchi and the bronchioles. Now, if you want to make pluripotent stem cells into these, you can do it. You go through these ventral anterior foregut spheroids and then into two distinct type of organoids is what they're showing here, the human lung organoids and the bud tip progenitor organoids, okay? The lung organoids... They're structures that are very reminiscent of the bronchi and bronchioles of the developing human airway. So it's a nice model of how things go on there in lung development. And the bud tip progenitor organoids, they're, they're highly proliferative, multipotent. They can differentiate into multiple lineages in vitro. So they're like, and they have great in, in vivo gra and graphene potential. So they're kind of like the therapeutic uh, uh, end of that. So it's like in one, in one story or one recipe here, they, they, they give you the means to get both these powerful experimental and therapeutic tools. And the recipe is very simple. I'm just going to briefly go over it and give you just the time scale here. So starting from pluripotent undifferentiated, just four days to get to endoderm and then another five to six days to get to these foregut spheroids. All right. So in about 10 days, you, you have the, the rudiments to go into your 3D, and that's when you do. You move those from a monolayer then into this organoid-type setup uh, and call that, we'll reset that as day zero. And then you can either go for 14 days to get these bud-tip progenitor organoids, which then you can maintain those for like like weeks and months, like f upwards of four months, you know, six, more than four months um, to get all the, you know, downstream structures with the proximal distal pattern, etc. cetera. Um, or alternatively from that day zero, you can go 50 days uh, and to get these human lug or organoids that recapitulate all like the bronchi and bronchioles and stuff and are a nice model. So, I mean, yeah, the time scales here are no joke. I'm not going to lie to you. We're talking here at the minimum, we're talking 60 days, and the maximum, we're talking upwards of 200. But hey, Rome wasn't built in a day, people, and neither was your lungs. So if you want to look at them, you want to model them, you want to mess with them, Jason Spence, he's got your recipe there in Nature Protocols. Next, all right, we were in the lung. This is like the NHLBI here. We moved from the lung, now we're going to the, not the heart, but like the vessels. I would call that like the H, I would say. Um, cardiovascular, we'll put that in. Uh, this is a story, it's a bit late, all right? I know maybe some of you saw this, like, come on, guys, get with it. But this is so good, I need to give my man Joseph Penninger a, a, a nod. He's not my man, but I met him, and he's one of those guys It's like the Einstein-type genius. You're like, this guy's cool. How can he be so successful in science? And I'll tell you why. It's because he's dumb smart. It's an oxymoron. But in the street, that means that you're extra smart. All right, on to this innovation. Him and his group, big up to Reiner Wimmer, too, corresponding author on this, probably had a big stake in it. All right, this is about using, making organoids, but organoids as a means of getting vessels to study diabetes, all right? Diabetes, global epidemic. 
rampant. And you know, no one, everyone's like, oh, I have diabetes. But what, what diabetes is, it's the sequelae, right? It's the downstream consequences. Blindness, kidney failure, heart attack, stroke, amputation of the lower limbs. And ultimately, diabetes, the way it gets to those sequelae is changes in the blood vessels. Okay, the hyperglycemia can lead to some damage of all your blood vessels. Blood vessels are everywhere, people. So that's known, but the dysfunction in, in the blood vessels, the endothelial cells and the parasites that make up blood vessels, it's the endothelial cells and the parasites, the dysfunction in that relationship is not really well-defined mechanistically. Um, so Joe Penninger and his group, they made these uh, self-organizing 3D human blood vessel organoids from pluripotent stem cells and shown show that they contain endothelial cells and parasites. They self-assemble into like vast and beautiful capillary networks that had all the, all the goodies, basement membrane, well-organized, arborized, blah, blah, blah. When you transplanted the mouse, they made a perfused vascular tray functioning with arteries, arterioles, venules, the whole nine. And when, this is the key, when you expose those organoids to hyperglycemia, they induced some of the hallmarks, thickening of the vascular basement membrane and other hallmarks of the pathology of diabetes. Um, and in vivo, too, when you put them in the diabetic milieu in mice, they also mimicked those microvascular changes that you see in diabetic patients. So th this was pretty much like, look, we made these organoids that then could form legit vessels. But then they took it to this other level, looking at mechanistically what was un underlying the you know, the the whole, the pathology of uh, the, the vascular changes and show that it was a DLL and notch three mediated mechanism. They're key drivers of the diabetic vasculopathy. All right, so this is a great way of saying, look, we can generate functionally, structurally generate blood vessels uh, in vitro that then function in vivo and they're a good model, and they are, they're a good model. They, they behave like vessels. They can become like diabetic vessels, and not by any kind of genetic manipulation either, just by, you know, exposing them to the hyperglycemia. But think about that then. It opens the door to taking all kinds of patients who may have a quote-unquote predisposition to uh, high blood pressure, diabetes. You do IPS cells. You look and screen, see if they're more prone to these hallmarks and the va va vascular pathology. So it's kind of like one of those, here's the nature story that's going to be cited a hundred times by this time next year. Uh, and I'm not surprised. Joseph Penninger, the genius from Vienna. I should have mentioned he's from Vienna. Um, he's in Vienna right now. Uh, last story, all right, now I said, I told you, NHLBI. We had the lung, we had the heart vessel type thing, and where do we end? The blood, I love the blood. I'm the count. Um, this is a cell stem cell article from Gay Crooks at UCLA. And this is really exploiting and the, all the, the momentum surrounding uh, the, the, the kind of anti-cancer uh, T-cell, uh, adoptive kind of therapy, immunotherapy type thing, all right? So these engineered T-cell therapies, people are bugging out about them because they have a lot of promise for cancer, chronic viral infections. They're a cure for a lot of things right now. We'll see if the other shoe's gonna drop in terms of recurrence, and it's inevitable in a few of these patients. But 
it's a pretty strong therapy that's leading to an effective cure for people who were pretty much on death's door. So yeah, uh, you know, appropriately, people are, are going crazy about these engineered T-cell therapies. But there's challenges because you got to you gotta get the T-cells, all right? And the real move here would be if you get universal donor T-cells from stably gene-modified pluripotent stem cells, right? Because then you could do a genetic modification that essentially made a stem cell line effective for off-the-shelf treatment for a whole broad array of therapies. You don't have to worry about case-by-case. Case. Then make T-cells, put them on the shelf. Take them on the shelf, off the shelf, and you know. And, you know, this, this isn't a new idea. People have been striving for this, myself included, failing at this for a long time. Uh, nominal success, not my own, but other people's. Um, but uh, it's tough to get fully functional mature T cells that resemble their adult counterparts. That's the challenge, all right? And what that means is you got to specify the progenitors with T lineage potential, but that, uh, that they also um, will become committed to precursors that have the same potential uh, as naive T cells, okay? And that, you know, in vivo, the way that happens is they grow in the thymus. They grow in a conventional thymic-like T cell environment. That's hematopoietic progenitors in the body. That's where they mature. And that's because there's these spatiotemporal in interactions on the precursor T cells from the thymic, epithelial, mesenchymal, and hematopoietic cells, and all those play a crit critical role in the onset and maintenance of, of T-cell lineage commitment. So, of course, the approach here from Dr. Crooks and the group there at UCLA was to use a three-dimensional organoid approach, because why not? That's what everybody's doing, but also it makes sense. Make it like the body makes it. Wow, the body's not... A monolayer, we all knew that. But uh, this case, they call it the, the artificial thymic organoid, and that's a 3D, they're pretty much making a thymus in vitro. And they show that if they get the ES cells or IPS cells um, differentiating in this context, they get the, the kind of hematopoietic progenitors, put them in that context, and they can make mature conventional T cells in vitro. And this is so big. What everyone talks about with hematopoietic everything, it's always, oh, but can it make T-cells? That's like the final, the way you shut down any HESC or IPSC-derived hematopoietic progenitor. Like, oh, well, let's see what the T-cell potential is, and then I'll, I'll get out of bed for that. Well, you got to get out of bed, all right? The alarm's going off. This T-cell phenotype, it was diverse. They had the whole repertoire. They could develop the naive T-cells. They had a potent antigenic-specific cytotoxicity. And when you did RNA-seq on them, the transcriptional profile, highly similar to that of primary naive T-cells from the human thymus, so the real thing. So this is, you know, this could be it. I don't want to over, overstate the importance, but I don't want to also overstate the, you know, whether or not they got there. But it could be it, people. This is if a potentially universal adoptive T-cell reservoir for immunotherapy against cancer or other diseases. That's a huge deal. You know, I, I think um, cancer probably made the greatest strides in cancer than in any disease in the last few years, you know. And this could be one that gets at the, the last cancers to fall.
you know, some of the solid tumors. We'll see. But big story there out of UCLA. And we're done with our tour through the organoid NHLBI and on to the interview. But first, you know, stem cell technologies would like to invite you to learn more about the stem diff neural system for human pluripotent stem cell-based neurological modeling. Okay? The stem diff neural system, it includes optimized kits to generate, expand, differentiate, characterize, and cryopreserve human pluripotent stem cell-derived neural progenitor cells. All right, there's a lot in this roundup we just talked about where, hey, if you want to get into the neural game, maybe this is your time. Some exciting things happening in the field. You could learn more about the uh, stem diff neural system at stemcell.com slash stem diff neural video. Okay, that's stemcell.com slash stem diff neural video. All right, guys, we're on to the interview. Today we have Dr. Stephanie Willerth from the University of Victoria. She's Associate Professor in Mechanical Engineering and the Canada Research Chair in Biomedical Engineering. Dr. Willerth's research focuses on using engineering-based approaches to stem cell biology, encompassing these three areas, and we're going to talk about those. One, naturally derived biomaterial scaffolds for promoting stem cell differentiation. Two, novel drug delivery systems based on synthetic polymers, and three functionalized transcription factors for influencing cell behavior. Her group has developed a toolkit for engineering neural tissue from pluripotent stem cells, and she's going to tell us a little bit about that today. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Dr. Willard. Oh, thanks for having me on. Uh, I'm really excited to talk about some of the work we've been doing uh, in the past year. Um, we've expanded a bit from some of the research areas you've, you've mentioned, um, including into 3D bioprinting and with some of the transcription factor things, we've gotten into cellular reprogramming as well. All right. Wow. All right. All right. She's taken, she's taken over. All right. So we were, we were a little bit off on the lead, but we're going to get to that. I knew about your bioprinting, Stephanie. Come on. You think I'm sleeping on that? But um, thank you so much for being on the show. We could start by just giving us a kind of broad, overarching focus in your lab if you don't mind, please. Uh, sure. In general, our lab has been looking at different ways of engineering neural tissue, primarily from stem cells, but with some of the reprogramming work, we've been uh, avoiding stem cells uh, and just directly reprogramming other types of somatic cells like skin and astrocytes back into neurons. And yeah, we uh, have really started to, especially this it's been a uh, two, uh, 2018 was a very productive year. So we uh, really pushed forward on this bioprinting work with Aspect Biosystems and uh, also with some of our cellular reprogramming work as well. Yeah, a productive year to say the least. And we're going to delve into that a bit. But I, I thought, you know, first, because it was so productive and broadly speaking productive, I think you're really going across different platforms. So we're going to break it down for our audience just a bit. Let's start with the stem cells and differentiation into neural cell types that are either therapeutically interesting or, you know, basic science developmentally interesting. There was a story you had looking at differentiation of neural cells in 2D versus 3D conditions recently. You know, we talk a lot and in this episode, in the roundup, we talked a lot about organoids. We've been talking about organoids. Everybody's talking about organoids. And there's this element of 3D. Tell us a little about your story there in the 3D versus 2D and the, 
the matrix, I know, is an important part of that story too. But you know, we can kind of delve broadly speaking into what is it about three dimensions and the niche, the more complex niche uh, inherent to three dimensions that's so important for getting faithful differentiation of uh, pluripotent cells. Sure. Um, I'll take a a few things you brought up. Uh, In general, our lab is is interested in all aspects of neural tissue engineering. And uh, as a fellow professor, I don't think it'll come as a surprise when I say we we follow what people give us money to do. Hmm. Um, so I, uh, for a lot of our engineered neural tissues, we've gotten a lot of interest from pharmaceutical companies for using them for drug screening. Uh, although it's much cooler to say we're going to bioprint everybody's spinal cords. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, we really look at it from all the perspectives, and especially with some of our reprogramming work, it is very potentially translatable um, to to people. Um, possibly even more so, which I will say I'm a person who did her high school thesis on on stem cells and cloning and Dolly. So uh, that's been an interest of mine for, I guess, decades now. So it's sort of interesting when we do some of this work where we don't have any stem cells, because I always was the person who did. I put stem cells in gels, and that's how we make neural tissue. Um, and the, the paper you're talking about, it was actually a really uh, surprising study to me, because uh, during my graduate work, I had done a lot of uh, work with mouse embryonic stem cells and making them into neural tissues inside of these 3D fibrin gels, which um, fibrin's the polymer, it's uh, when your blood clots, it's the main clotting component. And so biocompatible, the mouse cells really like to grow in it. And uh, so that was good. And then I got my own faculty position and I wanted to work with, um, because they had just been, I'm dating myself, but uh, when I was in graduate school is when human-induced pluripotent stem cells were discovered. And as a tissue engineer, uh, the one thing I was like, oh, we can make patient-specific tissues, which I think they've done now in Japan, or they've at least transplanted patients' own cell lines uh, back into them with HIPSCs. It's like, oh, we want to make neural tissues from these HIPSCs. And uh, in that particular paper, it's interesting because the cells, the human cells didn't particularly like the human fibrin until we did a bit of the modulation um, to add in some laminin and things, which was surprising to me as the mouse cells um, were much happier in the 3D matrix compared to some of the 2D cultures. So I think it really comes into figuring out what the components are of the stem cell niche and what needs to be recapitulated. So yeah, along those lines, I guess this is my great, and it's, I guess, maybe a philosophical question on some level, but you know, the, the, there's two ways of thinking about it, and they are kind of conjoined in some ways, and that the 2D, it's fundamental. Things don't grow in a monolayer. And it's fundamental to the system that, like, structurally, spatially, the cells need to be surrounded on all sides. And then there's a kind of, I don't know if I would say opposed idea, but complementary idea that you can maybe recapitulate just by signaling. If you can give the inputs in in the level of, like, recombinant proteins or whatever, if you can recapitulate the signaling milieu, it's pretty much you you can bypass the 3D do you what do you think is the relationship or what's the primacy of the the signaling milieu or the is it the spatial relationships in this 3D versus 2D that's that's more important? Well, we do um obviously a lot of our work in 3D and at least it seems to me for the nervous system you need at least some degree of the the 3D structure just for how the different cells interact. Um and although we haven't published on it. Uh, Our lab has also made some organoids too, which I think is really interesting when you compare uh, all of our bioprinting work 
um, with some of the organoid things, because with bioprinting, you can have a you can have a great degree with the system we use, a great degree of control over the structures and how you print different cells and the different patterns. But then you have organoids where you can, it's this intrinsic stem cell property. Obviously, there's still signaling cues there. And then you get these um, mini brains, and each of them sort of has their advantages and, and disadvantages. Um, so that's sort of where we are. But I do think the three-dimensionality for, for brain uh, and spinal cord and the nervous system is is important just because of how those systems function. Yeah, and I guess to the philosophical level now, there's this other story you've had recently, and it's exploiting a tool that you've developed and used broadly, this ASCL2, ASCL1, uh, fused to this protein transduction. It's kind of a way you can go outside of a genetic uh, no footprints, and you can reprogram cells. This is IPS differentiation using this neural-specific gene. And again, it's this idea of maybe following up from my previous question, it's like you get to the end point by direct reprogramming instead of using uh, uh, whatever the cells would normally do in differentiation, you kind of enforce it. Do you think that bypassing the normal... Uh, ontogeny, let's say, of a cell is is a path that leads, I mean, philosophically speaking, or actually, is it the same cell? If you get a neuron by protein introduction with ASCL1 or versus like 3D versus 2D versus just native differentiation versus in a human um, embryo fetus, do you think those cell types are, have equivalency or does it even matter that they have equivalency? Yeah, I think it really would depend on how you define equivalency. Um, and some of that work with our functionalized transcription factors is interesting because as an engineer, I tend to be a very practical person. Um, and so we, we work with HIPSCs, but when people do some of the reprogramming with, with lentiviral, I was always like, well, this is never going to go. Like, that's awesome. You can turn a fibroblast into a cardiomyocyte, but like, they're not gonna, you're not going to put this in people. Which is why when we started working with um, this company that made functionalized transcription factors, they were actually stable. And then they actually could, um, not only did they reprogram human-induced pluripotent stem cells, but we just had a paper come out in Frontiers back in October where we showed they could actually convert astrocytes into neurons uh, just using proteins, which you could actually, well, not that we've done this, but would be potentially uh, an easier way to translate than compared to some of the other reprogramming things. Um, and for those, I think you can convert them into some back into these progenitor-like states. Um, how comparable they are would you know, require significant transcriptomics. Um, I do know, I think in some of the reprogrammed cells, they do get the functionality, the signaling and things like that. We haven't gotten there yet with ours that have been reprogrammed with non-linty. Um, and one other thing on the 2D versus 3D uh, we had a paper come out last summer where we used small molecules to reprogram glioblastoma into non-differentiating neurons, which was a bit surprising since um, some days you're like, oh, my lab does cancer. And then <laughs> someday my, my lab did cancer. Uh, it was actually one of my uh, star undergraduates, Chris Lee. He um, came and did an honors thesis. And we have, I guess, as, as labs do, we had cancer cells and he um, looked in the literature and was like, I think we can reprogram them. And I was like, okay. And then he presented it and I was like, oh, wow, you really did do that. Um, and then more recently he uh, did, he's a super undergrad. He um, 
looked at these reprogramming with small molecules um, in 3D tumor models, and he didn't see the same level of reprogramming that he saw in the 2D, which is why I think for for anything that there is this 2D versus 3D component going on. Mm. And that's probably you know why people want 3D tumor models or neural models for their drug screening, because it's, you know, more, hopefully more accurate. Yeah, speaking of the cancer, um, I was going to get to that because I think it's more evidence of your kind of scientific dilettante uh, persona. I mean, in the best way, of course, speaking, you go deeply on like a dilettante. Um, but yeah, there's this glio thing, both in terms of reprogramming uh, glio into neurons, and also there's uh, bioprinting, as you kind of uh, referenced earlier, uh, bioprinting the glio. So you're in this whole other sphere that I guess is much more disease-focused, cancer-focused, as you alluded to there, maybe funded by a kind of corporate industrial interest. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, well, the, the cancer thing was just sort of um, new, but with the bioprinting technology, I mean, uh, so it, um, it's an Aspect RX1 bioprinter. We were, I think, the second research group at a university to get one. So that was fun and very exciting. Its technology can print multiple cell types and multiple materials. And so we were really excited to uh, finally start printing with it, as you you might know as a professor, and for those listening who don't know, or who's ever worked in a corporation, it took probably a year and a half to get the printer installed. So when we finally got it installed, my lab was ready to bioprint everything that was in cell culture dishes in the lab. So... um, what are the limits there, the bioprinting, in terms of like macro? What, what have you gotten up to in terms of scale? Um, we've only, we've, uh, like our first set was still just, you know, on the ranges of, of centimeters and things, but it was mainly uh, a lot of the things with the bioprinting of human-induced pluripotent stem cell-derived neuroprogenitors was that in the literature, people would bioprint them and they wouldn't have very good viability. Mm. And so we got... Uh, our bioink, and this is out in ACS Biomaterial Science and um, Materials Today Chemistry paper and Applied Science paper. So our lab print published all the papers on this <laughs> in a, a short while. It was very interesting uh, when you submit all these papers and then to see which ones get accepted in what order. But um, we made a very effective bioink for printing all sorts of neural tissues. And so we've been mainly, that was mainly proof of concept. And then everyone's like, why did you just print circles? And why did you print rings? And I was like, well, we didn't know how well the cells would survive and differentiate. But now that we know they survive and differentiate, we can uh, print some really cool things. So are we talking about like mini brains here? And whatever you do in terms of the scale, is it, there's this, I guess, appreciation, long time appreciation, but now newly the capacity to invest these mini structures with uh, vasculature. Is that one of your... On the yeah. horizon, I mean, are you going to make mini brains that, that have vessels? Yeah, we um, are looking into that. And I think there was just a, a recent paper that came out um, of UVC where they actually had done uh, have done that, put some stable vasculature into brain organoids, which I think my lab is trying to replicate. Um, obviously, with the brain, blood-brain barrier is very important. And this technology is sophisticated enough that you can can do that and place uh, the cells in the appropriate locations. Now, I mean, as if mini brains uh, wasn't enough, you also have this this story with water purity monitor, which is totally out of left field. And we don't have to go into detail on that. I just think it brought me to, it brought to light a kind of question that I had 
um, with regard to just the, the truisms of science, one of which I've always heard from my mentors is like, oh, the most critical thing you can do is just find a good problem or find a good question. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I get that. It's totally, totally right and great advice. But there's also, I think, kind of an engineering perspective that I've heard from some of the engineers and bioengineers in particular that I've heard, which is kind of like, I got this hammer, now let me go find a nail. You know. So do you find that, that one of those or the other is kind of more uh, present in your, kinda, your practice, whether or not it's your philosophy of science? How, how does it work being a bioengineer in the world of stem cells? You got a lot of hammers that you developed, and I feel like a lot of people are saying, hey, I got all these nails. Yeah, um, I think it might be my personal philosophy, uh, which I don't know if this is good advice, but I like to do things that are interesting. Um, and the Water Quality Project came about because uh, Grand Challenges, who funds it in Canada, they want to see you do something. They want to apply your expertise to something you're not an expert in. And so um, it was just an interesting collaboration. Uh, one of my colleagues, Dr. Alex Brolo, had these um, microparticles and um, it was one of those times when we're like, will this really work? And then two years later, we're like, oh, wow, it actually did um, did actually end up working. And same for some of the similar things. I do think I go, uh, I think it's probably because um, my main thing has always been biomaterials and fibrin, which I've been doing for over, I think, 13 or 14 years now. Um, I have that. And then we've, we've branched out into some of these other things, although there have been some common themes like I had worked on a ASCL1. Uh, I had done some math modeling based on its expression when I was um, finishing up my grad work. And so coming back to that to, to do trans differentiation um, wasn't as big of a stretch. Um, but yeah, in general, and I also tend to let my students kind of explore their own interests, which can lead down some, some interesting pathways like our cancer project. Mm. So yeah, in terms of, I know you have a very broad focus and you're happy to follow the thread, uh, but what personally is like your holy grail uh, in terms of your scientific ambition? Like what, if you could look back on your research career when you're 90 and finally decide to leave the lab behind, what, what would you love to have done? Oh, I think it would be great if either... Um, well, I think my ambition for a long time uh, with the stem cell work and fibrin was hopefully getting some version of our fibrin formulations to be used in one of the clinical trials to help get cell survival. Um, the interesting thing with the transcription factor work, because of the regulatory burden, which should be there to get a stem cell therapy into a trial, and which is why it's harder, even harder to get something with a biomaterial and a stem cell into clinical trials. Um, the, the functionalized transcription factor stuff uh, would be very interesting if uh, we could test that eventually in people. We do have collaborators who've tested it in animals where they have seen some of the reprogramming occur in vivo, which is promising. And with a protein, that's a much simpler path. So um, hopefully at the end of the day, I'd be if I did something useful. <laughs> <laughs> what modest ambitions. I have to say, though, that's the, the ambition that is echoed. I, I agree with you 100%. And it's, it's amazing how modest no matter what the level of achievement. Well, at least at the sweet people I've, I've spoken to, but thanks to this podcast, I've spoken to some very high-achieving individuals in science, and I have to say the world over, I think that the ambition for many, if not most scientists, 
is very modest. It's, I would love for my work to be translated. I would love to see this XYZ be used in humans to, you know, some positive effect. And is there anything better? I mean, could there be anything better to look, to look back on in your research career than taking something that you found and having it, you know, do something good? So I think that as modest as that sounds, to, to do something useful, uh, I would say that uh, your research trajectory is certainly got you on that path and more. Now, I know that was a bit of a personal um, question, but we're going to go even deeper personal and less scientific, although there's a glancing blow at the science here with a couple of uh, personal questions to end the interview. First, who is or are your scientific hero or heroes? Um, I would say two people, uh, oh, well, three probably. So um, being in British Columbia, I really like uh, what Alan Eaves has done with stem cell technologies and how he makes uh, a good product. And we, we collaborate with them, I'll say that, but um, I love their science. I, I like how he is a scientist at heart. Um, and then another person who I have a lot of respect for um, and how he uh, conducted his career is Jody Simone and, and how he had a very uh, long, distinguished academic career and now what he's doing with carbon. And if you follow his Twitter, he's living his best life, <laughs> it looks like, in California. Um, so, yeah, Carbon 3D is uh, one of the big 3D printing companies, and they pull mm. out polymers. Um, it's, it's literally Terminator style. <laughs> <laughs> And then, obviously, as a neural tissue engineer, um, Molly Choiquette at the University of Toronto, um, which she's been does in the field of neural tissue engineering, some of the companies she's spun off, and uh, her leadership in the community. And she's actually has done a lot of outreach. And it's interesting in, in Canada, so I'm originally from the States, um, how I, I feel like in Canada there's a really big appetite to learn more about science uh, with Cafe Scientifiques, and she has a research to reality program to translate scientific work to popular culture. And so I, I really think there's a lot of uh, appetite for that here. Well, remarkably, from the States, but found a home in Canada amongst her heroes, <laughs> Stephanie Willard. Wow, lucky you. Um, that was, I have to say as a disclaimer, that Alan Eves is and Stem Cell Technology sponsors this show as well. But, uh, you know, I don't think that was a plug. I don't think that was a shameless plug on Stephanie's part. I think that's genuine because I feel very similarly. Final question. This is a little fill in the blanks. Maybe we can have fun with this. All right. A, there's, there's, we're going to D here. So there's four of these. Prepare yourself. Okay. A, the biggest thing in the stem cell field right now is? Uh, I would say uh, regulation with the... Um I, I get it a lot, even just as a professor, people from the community saying, I've read this ad in the paper, is this stem cell therapy legit or not? And uh, given some of the uncertainties in the U.S., I think just regulatory, uh, how things get approved, um, can we maintain our integrity as a field? It's a big issue. That's a great answer. I thought that I was looking for something sci science-related, <laughs> but it's oversight. No, I, I'm, I, I'm glad you didn't do that. It's much better. It's a much better answer. Because it's so true, um, and every you know, <laughs> it's funny. Every researcher, I feel like, is a little bit biased when it comes to science. You might say biomaterials, for instance, but instead, you went with oversight. Good for you. B. I would never have gotten to this point in my career without. Uh, I'd say persistence. There you go. <laughs> An attribute. You need persistence. You need to stand up in the face of failure. C. 
When it comes to blank, I am pretty much worthless. Ooh, um, home decorating. <laughs> yes, yeah, well, that makes two of us. I mean, are you, lab decorating you can handle, I'm sure. You know all the right equipment. But, uh, yeah. Leave home for the homeboys uh, or girls. D, if the lab catches fire and I have a chance to grab one thing on the way out, it's... Probably the bioprinter. It's <laughs> really expensive. <laughs> yeah, that is expensive. You better bring a hand truck if, if you're, yeah. you're going to take on that. All right, what's the footprint on these bioprinters nowadays? Um, Aspect has gotten theirs down so it fits in a standard hood. So huh. um, Ours was uh, one of their second. So we had to special order a hood, which is why it took so long to get installed. But now I think they can do it much quicker. So. I, I still advise you need some equipment to handle that equipment if you're going no, you, to have to rescue it from a fire, Stephanie. Thank yeah. you so much for doing this. This was a great chat with you. Uh, we're really optimistic about your research. You're going to come with like five or six papers in the next year again, and then we can maybe bring you back to tell us about some other work that you're doing and have done. Thank you, Dr. Willis, again for your oh, yeah. time here. Thanks for having me on. All right, that brings us to the end of our show. Wonderful interview with Stephanie Willerth. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or via email at info at stemcellpodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests. Or, you know, you can still get in there Apply to be a co-host. There's a lot of stuff, a lot of stuff you need to get in contact with us about. All right, get to it. Another great episode, number 135, with Stephanie telling us about bioprinting, biomaterials, engineering, the whole nine. Great show. See you guys in a couple weeks.